Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Let me, uh, let me pray. Do keep um, Luke 20 open. We're going to have a look at that for the next few minutes together. But let me pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus Christ, preserved for us by the eyewitnesses that we might know about him and about ourselves. And we pray that as we come to them this evening, you would help us to understand But more than understand, help us to heed what he says, to believe it, to obey it, and to put it into practice in his name and for his honour. Amen. Uh, Well, a couple of years ago, I went to uh, an event uh, very much like the one uh, we're having here on Friday, um, thinking through the topic of suffering. Uh, I was chatting to uh, a lady afterwards, and she said uh, these words to me, which um, I've often thought about since. Uh, She said, you Christians, you Christians, you, you always praise God, but you never blame him. You always praise God, but you never blame God. Now, I thought that was quite perceptive. I've thought about it quite often because at one level I wanted to say to her, well, I think that's good and right and I think there are some reasons for that. We may even think about some of them this evening in Luke 20. But on the other hand, I also found myself thinking, is that really true that we always praise God and never blame him? Have you never been in a Bible study where someone has said, I'm so angry with God right now, or I could never believe in a God like that, or surely God wouldn't say or do something like that? This evening, the question I want to ask you is very simple. What do you make of Jesus Christ? What's your attitude towards Jesus of Nazareth? 
And um, here at Christchurch Forward, we love people to ask their questions. Whether you're a Christian or not, I hope you didn't feel that you had to check your brain at the door on the way in. No, we love people to, to engage and think and question and get into the Bible and ask, what does it really mean? And to use the, uh, the minds that God's given them. But it strikes me that there is a fine line between the inquiring mind and the accusatory finger. A fine line between um, the, the honest question and the hostile accusation. Very easy to put myself in the place of judge over God. I once went to um, an event called God in the Dock. And I knew what it was trying to say. Uh, an opportunity for Christians to try and defend and explain what God is all about. But um, is it really right for me to sit in the judge's seat and point the finger at God in the dock. There's a world of difference between the humble question, the inquiring mind, and the hostile accusation, the accusatory finger. And um, here in Luke 20, you have Jesus warning people in the temple that if they're pointing the finger of accusation at him, they are in a dangerous place. Um, we're in the middle of Jesus' temple takeover. Uh, we've seen in Luke 19 that Jesus is God's king, come to God's capital city. And again and again, if you read Luke 19, we're told that Jesus is he's going up to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, we're told it, verse 28, verse 37, verse 41 of Luke 19, that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and the temple. And then verse 45, he entered the temple area, verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple. 20 verse 1, he's teaching in the temple courts. Here is God's king in God's temple. He's taken it over and he's teaching. But the questions that he meets with, they're not the honest questions of the inquiring mind. No, um, over these next few chapters, we're going to see that Jesus meets with opposition, obfuscation, and resistance from the leaders of Jerusalem. He meets with the accusatory finger. And this parable, this story that Jesus tells at the beginning of the conversation, well, in it, Jesus is basically going to explain everything that is happening over the next few chapters. But more than that, he's going to warn his hearers that it's never safe to sit in the judge's seat with God in the dock. Well, the first thing we see in the story is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Have a look at verse 9 with me. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, the vineyard, we had that reading from Isaiah 5, didn't we? The vineyard is a common picture in the Old Testament for Israel. Now, the idea is that God had, had rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them to this beautiful land that he'd put them in. The vineyard, both the, um, the place and the people of Israel, this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. 
You know, the Old Testament picture, it's as if, um, it's as if you're taken from your room in halls. Now, I don't know what your room is like uh, that you've moved into this week. Um, when I moved into halls, it was um, a broken microwave, a small kitchen, uh, an uncomfortable bed, and um, a lot of strangers along my corridor. And um, it was fine, and I muddled through. But um, the picture here is being taken from your room in halls out into the Peak District, up to Chatsworth Manor. You heard of Chatsworth? It's the sort of stately home that other stately homes wish they could be. And um, you're taken from your room in halls, you're taken up to the balcony of Chatsworth, you look out over this massive estate in the Peak District and you're told, it's all yours. The massive house, the estate, the, um, the deer gently grazing, the lambs gambling, it's all yours. A beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. God, in his generous kindness, he'd taken them and he'd moved them there. The vineyard speaks of the stunning generosity of God. But of course, Israel was only ever a microcosm of all that is good in the world that our generous God has given us. Just as God planted Israel in this beautiful and ideal home, God has given us a glorious world. When you um, think of the odds of a world even sustaining life, is it not remarkable that the world we live in doesn't just sustain life, but it's beautiful. It's full of happiness and joy and music and laughter. You only need to go out into the Peak District on a clear night and look at the stars to see the generosity of God, his kindness, his goodness, his love. But we see as well in this story that Jesus tells the patience and the long-suffering kindness of God. Look again at verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, So he's going to get the bailiffs in. No, verse 11, he sent another servant. But that one, they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Okay, bailiff's time. No, wait, verse 12, he sent still a third. And they wounded him and threw him out. You see, again and again, the tenants reject the landlord in the story. But again and again... The landlord sends a servant and another servant and another servant. And here Jesus is telling the story of the Old Testament. Uh, The prophets are repeatedly called God's servants in the Old Testament. And all through that part of the Bible, if you read it, is the history of the people of Israel turning their backs on God again and again. And God sending prophets again and again. And again, here is the goodness and the patience of a God who loves people and longs for them to come back. Generation after generation, servant after servant. Uh, you know, sometimes I meet people who, um, who think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow a kind of mean headmaster. You know, he's, he's always looking to find fault with people. And if only we can get to the New Testament, we'll find that he's loving and kind. But that's not it at all. 
You read the Old Testament and you find that that couldn't be further from the truth. You find a God who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and rich in love. A God who says, I do not delight in the perishing of the wicked. A God who sends prophet after prophet calling people, will you only come back? And a people who turn them away, one after another. The patience and long-suffering kindness of God that you see in the Bible. And it's perfectly captured in this story, isn't it? As the master sends servant after servant after servant. Did you notice the escalation in how badly the servants are treated in these verses? Uh, in, In verse 10, the second half, they beat him and send him away. But in verse 11, they beat him, treat him shamefully and send him away. And then the third one, verse 12, they wound and throw out. You see, the treatment gets worse and worse. And again, we see it in the Old Testament. Micaiah the prophet, beaten up and thrown into prison by the king. Jeremiah, thrown into a well and then stoned to death. Isaiah, sawn in two while he was still alive, tradition tells us. Again and again, the prophets of God, beaten, hurt, shamefully treated, killed... But again and again, in his goodness, God bears with the people and sends another messenger, come back, come back. And of course, we see his goodness and patience and loving kindness, his forbearance, most of all, when he sends his son. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. It's not that the master's out of ideas here. He has every right to um, send the bailiffs and turf out the tenants. Uh, We see later on that justice is done. But here is a God who is so good, a master, an owner who is so good, that in his his extraordinary um, kindness, he thinks, surely, if I send my son... That will be decisive. Now, did you feel the emotional impact of verse 13? I will send my son whom I love. Now, twice already in Luke's gospel, we've heard the voice from heaven declare of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. You know, the sense of that word, it's perhaps they'll be ashamed of what they're doing. When they see that it's my own flesh and blood... Maybe they'll turn back. It's precisely um, the story of Israel and our world that is here. Um, I, I don't know what you've got for a heading in your Bible. I've got the parable of the tenants. But I wonder if it would be, be, um, be better to call this the parable of the loving, patient, long-suffering and kind landlord. Would it not? The goodness of God. Uh, Those first century religious leaders sat in the temple listening to Jesus. The, um, The Israelites that they represented, you know, they could never point the finger at God and say, God hasn't done enough for us. God hasn't made himself clear enough. For hundreds of years, in his patient kindness, he'd borne with them. He'd sent them messenger after messenger, not abstract ideas, but real historical interventions 
They'd had Jesus with them for three years, demonstrating his goodness and his power and his grace. No, they they could never turn to him and say, God, you've not done enough. And let's be clear, neither can we, living in 21st century Britain, can we? How could we dare to point the finger at God and say, God hasn't done enough? God hasn't made himself clear enough. He's revealed himself in history. He sent prophets. He sent his beloved son. And we live in a country with a great heritage of Christian knowledge. We've had a reformation. We've had an evangelical revival. We have the Bible in our own language. And we could point the finger at God and say, you haven't done enough. Uh, Here's what one writer says about Jesus. The news of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, is not mythical narrative revealed in the head of a prophet and transcribed in the books called Gospels. It was a phenomenon in time and space. It was an event of history. At its heart, Christianity concerns the public, verifiable life story of the man Jesus, the man who claimed personally to reveal God and of whom God has given assurance to use Paul's words, by raising him from the dead. Philosophically, this claim belongs to a different category entirely to that of Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Islam, and Baha'i. Paul's news, Jesus' news, concerns not simply timeless spiritual truths, but actual events which occurred just recently over the other side of the Mediterranean, Events about a man who forgave prostitutes, rebuked religious bigots, healed the sick, died for sins, and most importantly, rose from the dead. This constitutes a verifiable claim, a daringly verifiable one. You see, we can't put God in the dock and say, you haven't done enough. You haven't made yourself clear enough. We dare not point the accusatory finger when we begin to think about the goodness of God the beautiful world he's given us, the the hundreds of years of patient bearing with us, sending his beloved son and giving us all the evidence that we need of his life. The goodness of God that Jesus defends in this story. But then secondly, the parable speaks of the guilt of humanity. The guilt of humanity. We see this in the way that the tenants treat those who are sent to them and you know there might be some doubt in amongst the rejecting and the shameful treatment and the beating the wounding we might wonder is there some confusion here but their motives become crystal clear in verse 14 when the tenants see the son verse 14 when the tenants saw him they talked the matter over this is the heir they said Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's a chilling moment in the story, isn't it? It's the moment when the tenants' hearts are laid bare for all to see in their words. They recognise that this man is the heir, the beloved son. Uh, They understand the personal connection to the landlord, but they want to seize control, and so they say, let's kill him. 
Now, actually, this is a conflict you see all the way through Luke's gospel. If you're a scribbler, maybe you found the handout, and I've put a number of um, references on there. As you, as if you read through Luke's gospel, you know, it's what, like about an hour and a half's worth of reading? Um, read it. And if you read it through as a whole, it becomes clear that Jesus is God's king come to earth. And as it becomes clear, the religious leaders grow more and more hostile to Jesus. They go from opposing him to rejecting him to planning his judicial murder. And here we see their motives laid bare in this story, in the chilling words of the tenants. This is the heir. Let's kill him. Here are people, these tenants, who want God's stuff but they don't want God. They want the vineyard, but they want to scrub God's name off the land register and put in their own name instead. They want to take his place. They want the good things he gives them, but they don't want him. I don't know if you know anyone who suffered identity theft before. We have some um, friends who um, actually they ended up in the newspaper because of how bad it was. Um, their identities were stolen, their credit cards were cloned, uh, the people took out a £24,000 loan in their names and they couldn't get back into their bank accounts because the bank wouldn't believe that they were them. They thought that someone else was the, were, were them. Their identity was stolen. But what if that happened not just to your bank account... I mean, I'm well aware that for some of you here, you you probably wouldn't mind if someone else had your balance instead of um, theirs. But what if that was not just your bank account, but your whole life that was stolen? You got home and there they were, in your home, with your parents, claiming them as their own. Uh, Your wife, your children, your family, taking them for their own. You go to lectures and they're there. You're not allowed in because they're in your seminars. Your identity stolen. Well, this is, what the, this is what the tenants want to do to the landlord. They want his stuff, but they want him out of the way so that they can get it. They want to take his place. You see it again and again in the gospel... You know, the first, century, the first century Israelite in rejecting Jesus, um, it wasn't an intellectual problem. It wasn't a cultural problem. Their whole culture was built around waiting for the Messiah. And Jesus had given them ample proof that that's who he was. He'd made his identity very clear. It was a problem of the heart. It was personal hostility towards God. It was wanting to take God's place and wanting him out of the way. And it's right that we recognise the historical context of this story. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish establishment as they oppose him in the days before his death. But we can't look down on them because of that. Because actually the attitude that Jesus describes here is a universal one. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. To want God's stuff but not want God, to want God out of the way. Has it ever occurred to you that to live in God's world 
to enjoy all the good things that he gives us every day, every breath that we breathe, and never to thank him or praise him or listen to him or pray to him, is to say to God, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. We see the universality of the attitude in the fact that um, it's every kind of person who's involved as Jesus is taken to the cross. You know, one writer puts it like this, the cross is proof positive that given the chance, man will murder his maker. See, our attitude to Jesus reveals our attitude to the creator. When we want his stuff, but we don't want him, we say, God, I wish you were dead. And someone will say to me, someone will say, look, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not, I'm not personally hostile to God. Isn't that a bit strong? I mean, I'm not hostile. I'm just, I'm just indifferent. I'm just not that bothered. You, you know, I've come here and, uh, and I, I want to think things through, but I, I don't think it's fair to say that I am personally hostile to God. And look, if that's you, let me just say this. Um, just by way of a, um, a, a, a loving word in your ear, if I may. There are different kinds of indifference. And there are different degrees to which being indifferent is justifiable. Um, I'm still with the same bank that I was uh, signed up for during Freshers' Week. Um, later, some of the accountants are going to tell me why that's a terrible idea. But I'm largely indifferent to the question of which bank I'm with. I give it very little thought. And um, to be honest... You know, I, I try and stay out of their way and they try and stay out of mine and it doesn't matter that much. You know, some kinds of indifference just don't matter, do they? It's fine. But if I had that attitude towards my wife or my children or my parents, it would matter very much, wouldn't it? To say of them, I hardly think of them. I try to stay out of their way. I don't talk to them much. I'm not really bothered. That kind of indifference, well, we'd have to say that that was personal, callous, and unjustifiable, wouldn't we? Hostility, hatred. Here is a God who made you and gave you everything good you enjoy, every breath that you breathe, who knows you inside out, who patiently has borne with you and sent his son, the one he loves, to die for you, to be indifferent to that one is hostility. When we want God's stuff but we don't want God, it's as if we're saying, God, I wish you were dead. And this is the guilt of humanity. Yes, the guilt of the religious leaders in the temple before Jesus, but the guilt of every one of us in our callous and unjustifiable personal rebellion against God And it's revealed in our attitude towards Jesus Christ. You see it in our culture, don't you? When was the last time you heard something that was both true and positive about Jesus on the TV or on the radio? You see it in our culture and you see it it in the way we speak when Jesus' name is used as a swear word or something for mockery or laughter. And you see it in our lives when we think little of him, when we're indifferent, when we don't care the guilt of humanity, the goodness of God, the guilt of humanity. And Jesus closes with a a warning, really. 
It's a sobering passage. He closes with a warning. And it's a warning about the one thing that matters most. The one thing that matters more than anything else in this world. And just have a look at verse 15 with me for a moment. Uh, They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus asks this question. And it's a powerful question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And we have to say, of course, don't we? Of course he will. If your beloved child, if your life had been stolen and your beloved child murdered, would you not cry out for justice? And here the vineyard owner comes and justice is done. And he hands the vineyard to other people in verse 16. And of course, historically, we see this in the New Testament, don't we? Because um, just as um, those sat in the temple are rejected and 70 years later the temple is destroyed, well, the good news of Jesus' forgiveness goes out to people of all nations And the blessing of God's kingdom goes to other people, Jews and Gentiles alike, as they come to Jesus. And the people understand the warning. They get what Jesus is saying when he talks about blessing being taken away and given to others. Because in verse 16, the people say, may this never be, God forbid. It's an extraordinarily strong expression. It means never, we just do not want this to happen. And Jesus goes on to sort of explain, to unpack the warning that he gives about justice and blessing. And he does it using this picture of a stone. Verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, you can probably see from the footnote, he's quoting from a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 118. It's actually, it's one of the Old Testament quotes that um, is most used in the New Testament. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Um, Peter quotes it in the first ever Christian sermon. He quotes it in his first letter, and Paul uses it as well for good measure in a couple of places. It's a big deal, this image of the stone. So, um... So what's going on? What's the deal with the cornerstone? Um, okay, so uh, here's the thing. Uh, I, studied, uh, I studied English and philosophy. So as you can imagine, my knowledge of construction is not all that hot. And uh, maybe an engineer or an engineering student can help me afterwards. Um, as I understand it, you work out what you want to build, and then you choose suitable materials for that job. So um, you don't build a car out of bricks, and you don't build a house out of jelly beans. You get the appropriate, um, uh, the appropriate material for which to build what you want to. Psalm 118 is talking about the temple, and is talking about the stone that is chosen to be the foundation stone on which the temple is built. So um, what sort of building is the temple well, the temple in the Old Testament is, um, is at the heart of the, um, the, the people's relationship with God. It's a place that speaks of belonging to the people of God. You know, Israel were the people who could say, our God lives next door in the temple. Our God lives in the middle of the people. And so the temple means belonging to the people of God. But it also means forgiveness 
in the Old Testament. The temple was the place where if you sinned, you could take an animal and sacrifice it and your sins could be forgiven. So the temple was at the heart of relationship with God. It was a place of belonging and a place of forgiveness. And um, the picture in Psalm 118 is that the builders at the quarry trying to find the right materials to build a building like that. And they come to one large, heavy stone, and they look at it, and they think, that's definitely not the sort of stone that we want. Take it away, throw it on the scrap heap, put it in the bin. Not that sort of stone for belonging with God and forgiveness from God. But, verse 17, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And the one that they say, no way, God says, that's the one. If you want to be part of my people, if you want to be forgiven by me, it's going to have to be built on one like that. And you see the point that Jesus is making. The one thing that matters most is what you make of that stone. Is what you make of Jesus Christ. Is what you make of the one who said, I am the beloved son of God, the Father uh, those who, um, who come to that stone, uh, those who, who have him as their king and ask him to be their, their rescuer, their saviour, well, they know what it is to belong to God and to be forgiven by him. Oh, this beloved son came to lay down his life as a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and welcomed into relationship with God. But... But many people are going to look at that stone and say, definitely not that one. And here's the warning. Verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The reason it matters so much what we think of Jesus Christ is because he is both the the foundation of a relationship with God and the judge who destroys the ungrateful tenant. And what we make of him will determine our destinies. Here's how one of the commentators put it. The son of God, like a cornerstone, is either received as the foundation stone of the edifice or it falls upon those who reject it with crushing force. The son is either saviour or judge of Israel and of humanity as a whole. And this is the warning that Jesus gives to those as they sit, um, as they sit around him and as so many of them are not asking the, um, the, the question of the inquiring mind but pointing the accusatory finger, Jesus says, watch out. Because to reject Jesus of Nazareth To reject God's cornerstone, his beloved son, leaves us only with judgment to look forward to. It's a stark and sobering warning, isn't it? That this is the real Jesus. This isn't sort of um, the semi-skimmed, cleaned up Jesus of popular culture, but the real one who got in people's faces and confronted them. And I want to ask you the question again, what do you make of Jesus of Nazareth? 
Though in light of the goodness of God and the guilt of humanity, nothing is more important than what you make of him. Um, two, two final thoughts by way of application, if I may, and then I'll stop. The first is this. Um, Christianity is about Christ. Maybe that's an obvious thing to say, but we see here that the heart of the question of a relationship with God is about what we make of Jesus Christ. Now, it may sound obvious, but isn't it easy to love church and the rituals or the relationships with other people or to love the experience of praising God? Isn't it easy to come and to sit on the fence? But the real issue, the decisive issue, the one that matters most is what you make of Jesus. What do you make of him? I know that some of you are going to do the, um, the tour of local churches as you've just settled here and you're, you're working out where to settle. Um, you know, we try to preach through passages of the Bible as they come up, so they're not all as heavy as this one. But let me just give you one word of advice for that search. Christianity is about Christ. And so make that your defining question for every church you look at. Do they give me Jesus in the pages of the Bible? Are they getting me into what Jesus really said and did? And make that your yardstick. Christianity is about Christ and what we make of him. All the rest is just sort of fluff around the edges. But then secondly, let me say this. Our attitude to Christ is crucial. Christian or non-Christian, our attitude to Christ is crucial. Let me say again, it is good to ask our questions. I hope you don't leave your brain at the door. I hope you've got um, all sorts of questions you want answered. If it's right for you, come to Christianity Explored or, or that evening on Friday or the, um, uh, the, the Mooncake Festival. Come along and ask your questions. And, you know, come to home group as a Christian and ask your questions. But remember, there is a fine line, isn't there, between the inquisitive mind and the accusatory finger. As some of those quotes, I'm so angry with God, I, I could never believe in a God like that. I like to think of God like this. Maybe God wasn't, you know, maybe God was like that in the Old Testament, but surely not in the New Testament. Those sorts of quotes. Let's be very careful with those sort of sentiments. Because you and I, we can never sit in the judge's seat and put God in the dock. What he thinks of me is far more important than what I think of him. What do you make of Jesus of Nazareth? There is nothing more important in all the world. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for the beauty of the Bible in all of its serious warnings and in all of its joyful promises. And we thank you for Jesus, who offers us both the warning of danger and the offer of eternal life. And we pray that you would help us to heed his warning and accept his promise. In our attitude to him, help us to be humble, to ask our questions out of a desire to know and to learn and, and never to try to put ourselves in the judge's chair. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.